an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The Volume. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant. But no matter how the action unfolds, you know DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant dub. We've got a huge game this week in Philadelphia. The Celtics and the Sixers going at it for the right to be called the best team in the Eastern Conference. That is a game that is going to have a lot of good bets available for it. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code MANIX. New customers can get $150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code MANIX. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort, Kansas, must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms. This is boxing with Chris Mannix. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. And we are back. Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. Colin Cowards Podcast Network. Welcome to everybody listening this week. Thank you for listening every single week. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. It's been a busy week in the world of boxing. You've got Saudi Arabia getting neck deep into the sport. Got a big fight this weekend featuring Shakur Stevenson. A lot happening in the boxing world. Kevin Ioli, the senior boxing writer over at Yahoo Sports, he joins me to break it all down. And I am fascinated to get Kevin's take on what the Saudis are doing because after taking over at least part of the golf world, after making a major impact in the soccer world. Is Saudi Arabia poised to become a big player in the boxing world? That is going to be fascinating to watch over the next weeks and months. So let's jump right into it. Kevin Ioli, senior boxing writer over at Yahoo Sports. And Kevin, I was in New York this past week. You were there. I was uh, watching the Callum Walsh fight this past Thursday. You were obviously there to cover more than that, the bigger deal happening on Saturday in the big room at Madison Square Garden. But, you know, Dana White, the head of UFC, uh, was once again over the weekend asked about working with Francis Ngannou. Obviously, Francis Ngannou coming off that uh, 
controversial, I don't know if we call it that, but close decision loss to Tyson Fury, really acquitted himself quite well. And now he is returning, presumably, to mixed martial arts in the PFL. Dana White was asked about matching Francis Ngannou up with John Jones, who is the other big star in uh, the heavyweight division in mixed martial arts, the UFC heavyweight champion. Dana was pretty dismissive, as as you might expect, basically saying, you know, we, we had Francis over here. We wanted to do the fight. He didn't want to do it. So now uh, we've moved on. That clearly, you know, uh, Kevin, is the biggest fight you could make in the heavyweight division for mixed martial arts. Um, yes. I'm sure you're not surprised that Dana White reacted the way that he did. But do you think the door is completely shut on the idea of Ngannou <laughs> facing John? Okay, that's uh, see, I don't know. I'm on the outside of mixed martial arts, kind of looking in. But uh, not happening. Uh, it is not going to happen. They had other big fights that are bigger than this, and just not. Gonna, you know, the thing that um, I, I think people forget. Well, there's a, a couple things here. PFL is running around acting as if they built Francis Ngannou into something. You know, they signed him into a contract and and people are saying they allowed him to box. Well, they didn't really allow him to box. Their contract begins in April of 2024. Um, and so he he boxed before he began his contract with them. We'll see if they allow him to box now. He wants to box again after he got a taste of the big payday that he got for fighting Tyson Fury. We'll see if they allow him to box. The UFC came under a lot of criticism for not allowing that. We'll now see if the PFL will face that same thing if if he uh forces them into letting him box again but yeah you know i i think that you know ufc has nothing to gain by co-promoting right they went for two years trying to sign francis and gone into an extension uh he went through a number of managers they weren't able to get it done um they finally his contract hadn't expired they released him from his contract and and both parties terminated so they were able to you know, do what they you know both move on to what they wanted to do so no chance of that happening and uh, and i think it's probably for the good you know it's just uh, there's a new star on the rise there and tom aspinall they can deal with that francis has his thing which i think you know he's going to make more money if he boxes because there's nobody in the pfl that he's going to fight that draws beans right francis hasn't been a big draw for them anyways chris uh, at all. Um, and I know the Fury um, in the U.S., the Fury Ganu fight hit like 56,000. Even, le- even less. Like, um, oh, you mean like total? Like, I, I think the number of pay per view buys were even less than that. Like, honestly, I've heard some numbers that are low, 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 low. But yeah, I, I agree with you. The greater point is I agree with you there. And so, you know, they the, the number I got came from a pretty good source that was supposedly the espn number um um the uh they might have done i heard a little bit more on tv and satellite but when i say a little bit more i mean like 2000 2500 more mm. so it just it just totally tanked now i'm sure they made money in the uk because uh um you know fury w- would sell in the uk but certainly in the u.s it was not a big seller and francis hasn't been a big seller in the u.s so pfl's got their hands full with him so let me ask you this, because I've weighed in on this a couple of times uh, since that fight. If you were guiding the career of Francis Ngannou, what direction would you tell him to take over the next year, 18 months? Well, if, if I'm guiding his career right now, right, with everything that has happened, I, I tell him to try to box again, number one. But if MMA becomes the thing... Deontay Wilder has expressed interest in fighting in MMA. Do everything you can to make that fight because there's no other fight out there in MMA that Francis can take that's going to be anywhere near interesting and, and sell. The fight, the heavyweights in the PFL are mostly Eastern Europeans. Uh, uh, there's a couple of Brazilians, but guys that have lost in the UFC, gone over and, and, and gone to the PFL, or, or guys that haven't made it into the UFC, they don't have a really good heavyweight division. And so um, if Francis fights one of their guys that's coming out of that, um, he, he might be a 25 to one favorite over anybody that they have. Um, how are you going to sell pay-per-view on that? And they don't have a really deep rest of their card. The one thing the UFC has going for them, even if you don't like the main event, they always put on really deep cards. So I think, you know, if I'm advising them, I say, well, one of two things, try to box again. Secondarily, if you have to fight MMA, Deontay Wilder, make talk to the Saudis about making a Deontay Wilder fight because Wilder said he's willing to do it. Um, and I think that would be the one thing that, you know, that Francis could make some dough on and um, and have a little bit of an ongoing because if they fight an MMA, then it brings him back to boxing. And so he gets two out of that. All right. So you mentioned the Saudis 
And you mentioned Deontay Wilder, which is the perfect segue to the first boxing topic I want to get into. The Saudis are doing another mega show. Not formally announced yet, but the pieces are in place for a huge event on December 23rd in Saudi Arabia. A lot of big names on this card, Kevin. You've got Anthony Joshua facing Otto Wallin, Deontay Wilder going up against Joseph Parker. This will be the first time that we'll see Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder on the same card. Granted, we'd love to see them fight each other, but they will be on the same card for this event. Dimitri Bivol is going to be back in action. Um, we've heard about you know, Daniel Dubois being in action potentially against Jarrell Miller. It is a a very, very deep card. You're talking seven, eight fights where at least the A-side is a pretty big name in the boxing world. Um, we knew the Saudis were looking to do something on December 23rd. Originally, it was going to be Fury Usyk. Now, it seems to be kind of an all-star event. What do you make of this event that's being put together in Saudi Arabia? Well, you know, the Saudis, Chris, have so much money that they can spend any amount and it's they're not exceeding any budget, right? Um, and they're trying to, I, I think they're trying to become another Las Vegas, right? And and uh, certainly in not just in, in combat sports, but in, you know, just in entertainment in general. And look at the transition of Las Vegas over the last couple of years and then the real big transition that they're making. But, you know, we have a Formula One race in Las Vegas this weekend. You know, now we have an NFL team. We have an NHL team uh, about to get a Major League Baseball team. There's going to be a 25,000-seat arena built uh, about a mile south of Mandalay Bay. There's supposedly going to hire an NBA, uh, hold an NBA team. Las Vegas has made that transition, and now you're seeing Saudi Arabia try to get some of that uh, in, you know, with via their entertainment dollar. And I think you know they're going to go hole in boxing. But I think what they're going to find out is that boxing is not successful unless you're putting the best fighters in the world together. Having a lineup of A sides against the you know C sides or worse is not going to be a recipe for success. Now, for them they don't care about the pay-per-view results or the ticket sales. They care about people. I, I think two things, you know, one, they're trying to get, you know, wealthy Brits to vacation there and also re- consider retiring there, uh, going there and retire. And I think that that's a really big part of what they're trying to do. And I think it's like five or six hours from the UK uh, uh, to Riyadh. And so that's something that if they, if they can use boxing where boxing is bigger in the UK than it is here in the United States, to accomplish that goal, then then they've gotten what they want. They're not worried, you know, what the pay-per-view numbers are. They're not worried about what the what the total gate is, like a boxing promoter in the United States would be. So, you know, that's number one. And, and I think if they can just kind of attract other acts by saying, hey, wow, look what they did, you know, because that opening ceremony they did before, it wasn't my kind of thing, right? I muted the television, but I'm sure there were a lot of acts out there saying, man, I would love to be in the middle of that. And so I think that's what their goal is. And so they're going to use boxing as long as they can. But I think they're going to find out unless they're putting, if you put A-side versus A-side and they have the money to do it and stack this kind of card, they'll go phenomenally big with that. But it's, you know, the goofy world of boxing and the sanctioning bodies screw things up as we're seeing with titles getting stripped from champions and whatnot. It's difficult to get all those fights made and everybody on the same schedule. Um, So I I question whether that will ever happen. Um, I would love to see it because, you know what, it would be great for the fans to get to see a card like that. Back in the day, I don't know if you were even uh, covering boxing, but Don King used to put on cards. that would have seven, eight championship fights on these cards. And people would scoff at them, but they would be great fights. And Ricardo Lopez would fight at four in the afternoon, one of the great fighters of all time. Um, If they get to something like that and they start doing that, Chris, I think they have a chance to do something. But I, I just don't think the business of boxing will allow that to occur. Yeah, look, the irony of this November 25th Showtime pay-per-view is it's probably the best pay-per-view top to bottom that Showtime has put on because they are putting championship-level fights on that undercard, which we haven't seen in previous Showtime fights. So I think you're right about that. Um, Look, this card is not perfect. I mean, in an ideal world, we are seeing Anthony Joshua against Deontay Wilder at the top of the card. In an ideal world, we're seeing Dimitri Bivol fight Archer Betterbiev as like a co-main event. That would be one of the greatest cards we've ever seen. But Anthony Joshua against Otto Wallin is a credible fight. Otto Wallin is number one, number two contender uh, for one of the sanctioning body titles. Uh, Philip Hergovich is going to be on that card. Uh, Deontay Wilder against Joseph Parker. Wilder's the favorite in that fight, but Parker's no pushover. Parker's Parker's a professional. He's a former world champion. Um, Has not looked great in recent fights, but 
credible opponent there. Uh, I, not so much with, you know, I guess the latest is, you know, what is it, Lyndon uh, was, I, I don't want to say Lyndon Johnson, but that's not right. The, uh, the, uh, the it, Dimitri Bevel's opponent is okay. Um, yeah. that's, moved, that's moved back and forth over the last, uh, you know, few days and weeks. Uh, mildly intrigued by a Daniel Dubois-Jarrell Miller fight, frankly. Like, Jarrell Miller has been off the grid since his double positive test in uh, 2019 prior to the Anthony Joshua fight. But Dubois against Jarrell Miller, another heavyweight of that mix. Herkovich, he's in that mix. So it's not bad. It's not perfect, but it's not a bad card. And I'm curious, Kevin, what it might lead to. I mean, I have to imagine that the Saudis are getting into business with Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder before the end of the year because they want to be the ones that put on Anthony Joshua against Deontay Wilder sometime next year, right? So we already know they're going to put on Fury against Usyk probably in mid-February of 2024. Maybe a couple months after that, you get Joshua against Wilder in early 2024. Why not? So I I think the thought is, the hope is that AJ could beat Wallen early. I think that's going to be a fight that goes rounds. I but do too. I, that's that's why I don't think February is. That's what I was gonna say. See, I think if that fight, so they're gonna look. But I, I have a feeling they would throw that together because that the money to them is nothing, right? The money to Bob Arum or Frank Warren or Eddie Hearn or whoever you want to talk about, they can't. They couldn't afford to do that kind of fight. But to, to the Saudis and uh, uh, they could put that that kind of fight card on. And to me, that would be what would grab the world's attention if that's what they're trying to do. You have the undisputed heavyweight championship fight, and maybe you have the person on and winning winning the other bout to who, after they have their two fights, fights you know uh, uh, the winner of that. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. But you know, th- they put uh, especially. I think the Joshua Wallin fight is going to be too long of a fight. I could see Wilder blowing out uh, Joe Parker and getting him out of there and two or three rounds and being able to go again in February because that would be two full months. Um, but I don't know about Wallin and Joshua. Lyndon Arthur is the name I was looking for. I always think Lyndon Johnson. And then I think Lyndon Byers, too, as a hockey fan, Kevin. I know yeah, Lyndon Byers is. The Bruins, up, of course. I grew, up watching, player. I grew up watching Lyndon Byers. Every time I hear Lyndon, I think Johnson and Byers. But it's Lyndon Arthur, Dimitri Bivol, is currently scheduled to face and defend uh, his title. Look, there's a lot of things the Saudis can do that – I think, make boxing a little bit more interesting. They do have the capital to put together these mega events, whether it's Fury against Usyk or Wilder against Joshua or even down the line, Better Biev against Dimitri Bivol. I don't think there's a chance in hell that Better Biev against Bivol happens unless the Middle East is involved. There just isn't the money, the money. for these two guys somewhere else. I mean, Bivol's got a request for you know $5 million a fight. Better Biev's probably right around that same range. They don't have the fan base. Like, they don't sell pay-per-views in the United States. They don't have a bankable uh, location to hold that fight. They need Riyadh, Abu Dhabi, someplace in the Middle East to step up and put the, put the money in into that place. So, yeah, I, I can see the Saudis being in that mix. One of the questions that I, I've been hearing when I talk to people in boxing is exactly how deep into all this does Saudi Arabia want to go. We remember, Kevin, a few years ago. I was just saying, yeah. Yeah, they create the Live Golf Tour, right? And they challenge the PGA. And they do it to varying degrees of success. They certainly were able to lure a lot of top players over to Live. And they were so competitive that they eventually forced PGA to merge with them. The barrier for entry for boxing is even lower than the barrier of entry entry right there. There is no barrier of entry, right? So you can do whatever you want. And promoters will happily fork over their clients in exchange for a nice pot of cash that you hand them. So I guess my question is, do you think this is the beginning of Saudi Arabia making a play to take over boxing? We saw them do it live. We've seen them do it with international soccer stars, big names, paying them a lot of money. There's always rumors that one day, They'll try to get top NBA players to play in the Saudi Basketball League, which is an actual league. It does exist in Saudi Arabia, and they do have some affinity for basketball over there. But boxing is the sport that they could ultimately control. They have the resources, and they don't give a damn if they're not selling pay-per-views on it, if they're not drawing big live gates on it. They could do a lot in boxing, Kevin. Do you think that's in play here when it comes to Saudi Arabia? 
I, I do, but I don't think it's going to work, right? I do think it's in play if it's successful, and I think they have the money to do it. And I thought about this, and I haven't gotten far enough into it to, to really want to write about it and explore it, but I, I thought about could they do kind of a UFC thing where they create a title, whatever they call it, Not it wouldn't be the Saudi title, but they create a title that would be equivalent to a world championship title and then just get weight classes and have them fight in Saudi Arabia on a regular basis and make the fights on a regular basis that you and I and many others have talked about wanting to see all the time that don't happen, you know, here in the United States, you know, the sanctioning bodies, their, you know, their idiocy, what, what they do and, um, you know, the, the money that's an issue. And I, I think, you know, as you were uh, speaking uh, before you asked that question, you know, I was thinking about how bad the business of boxing is, right? They're paying guys way more money than they can, they can generate. Like how stupid is that? You know, you don't pay people more money than they can generate, but the business of boxing is out of whack and it really hurts uh the long run, it hurts the sport as a sport. So, Bivol makes you know five million to fight in the U.S. and the promoter ends up losing three million. Um, why are you paying them five million? Right? I mean, it's just it doesn't make sense. And um, you know, it, boxing has so many problems. It's not promoted well. There, there's a million problems to go with boxing, but the Saudis can override all that if they want to. I just question once they start to see what they're getting for their money and they start figuring out okay is our strategy that i alluded to earlier with the with the british people uh working if if boxing is the best vehicle for it right now it's the it's the lowest you know common denominator it's the low fruit hanging on the tree and they're just chopping it off but like you said hey they could get whatever they want to go over there when you look at what they did in golf they took the reigning british open champion then they eventually got um uh kepko what did he he won a major this year i forget which major he won i think the pga championship but they you know they have a couple of the reigning ma uh, major champions right now in the uh in live golf and so they can do pretty much their money is there's nobody that's going to say, hey, I have this moral objection, right? Um, UFC is going over there now. Uh, they're going to have a, a fight night card in uh, March of 2024. WWE has been there for a long time. Um, I, I wasn't aware of what you mentioned about the NBA, but certainly, hey, look, if there was a way to put an NFL game over there, NFL would take the money. 100% they would take the money. Um, you know, so the Saudis can buy whatever they want and it's just going to depend in my opinion how they view the success from their terms not the quality of the boxing in the ring but what help happens outside the ring what did boxing do for them in terms of their ultimate vision to make Riyadh uh, a big tourist destination oh the nba you saw the reaction the players had when the saudis made that offer to was it the british soccer player mbappe who was <laughs> right. going to get all in something in the neighborhood of like a billion dollars, basically a yeah. billion dollar offer, an insane yeah. offer. So I think the prospect of Saudi Arabia luring top NBA players in the same way they lure top soccer players is certainly something that is, I know it's on the radar of the NBA. I know they think about it. They wonder how that's all going to play out. Um, one thing the Saudis showed with the Live Golf Tour is that they can be the bankroll for something without having all the events in Saudi Arabia. So right. they could start the Saudi Boxing League or whatever you want to call it. And they could still do a whole bunch of shows in the United States. Like how many live golf events took place on U.S. soil, on European right. soil? They were there all the time. So the Saudis could pull this off. They could have the best of both worlds. They could overpay some of these boxers to fight on U.S.-based shows and get big events over there. And then let's say four times per year, you have super events in Saudi Arabia, one in Riyadh, one in Jeddah. Like you have them all over the country and you do these mega events where it's like four or you know, two, three, four big time fights all on the same car. There's a lot they can do and a lot, there's a lot of creativity they can have with the bottomless well of money that they have. So I, look, I'm, I'm very curious to see what the interest is in 2024, what the strategy yeah. is for Saudi Arabia in 2024. I think they can help boxing. I think that because one of the problems we have in the United States is, you know, that they don't draw. So it, it makes it hard to put the fights together. We want if they if they do that and they start bringing the fights around, you know, I think it's good. The only bad part I see is from a television standpoint, the more yeah. shows 
or in Saudi Arabia, you're going to be, you know, in the morning on the West Coast and you're going to be in, you know, the early afternoon or late afternoon on the East Coast. And how do you draw boxing fans at that time of day on a Saturday afternoon when people are out enjoying the, the weekend and whatnot? But, you know, I, I think they're smart enough that they could they could get around that and, and figure a solution to that. But I, I do think if they feel like boxing is delivering what they want, um, and I don't think when Liv was founded, Chris, that um, they were completely finished with their strategy because Riyadh was not finished yet. Riyadh is now finished in the way they want it. And the Riyadh strip is, uh, you know, if you, you saw the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, looked phenomenal. I mean, it looked like the Las Vegas strip. And, you know, we have all these billion and multi-billion dollar hotels. We have one here in Las Vegas. It's three point, how many billion it's opening uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, the Fontainebleau, um, and they can just snap their fingers and put that kind of, you know, kind of stuff up. Um, and so I think if they feel like they get it, they can have a big impact on boxing and not a negative impact, right? I think it could be a positive impact for U.S. boxing fans, but the likelihood of it happening, in my opinion, is low. Yeah. Um, you, If you make big fights, you're going to have a positive impact on boxing. Now, there are downsides. There are tricks. I mean, Live Golf Tour never got a real TV deal. I mean, they were paying money to networks effectively to put them on the air. They're on the CW. CW, the yeah. End. yeah. I like actually ESPN. watched them. Yeah, I mean, if I was a, a bigger golf fan, I probably would watch because I look for the best players in the game. Just like in other sports, I watch uh, the best uh, competition. But it'll be interesting. It really will be interesting to watch because this, it's one thing to do Fury against Nganu and Fury against Usyk. It's another thing to put a lot of money into a card with some of the biggest names in boxing, not necessarily fighting each other, which tells me they may be trying to set something up for the first half of, uh, of 2024. Uh, all right, let's talk about a few things stateside. Uh, Terrence Crawford, a couple of months now, a few months now removed from defeating Errol Spence Jr. to win the undisputed uh, welterweight championship. He is now... Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Now, the unified heavyweight champion after the IBF chose to strip him of his title, Jerron Boots Ennis, is now the IBF champion at 147 pounds. This has drawn some criticism, Kevin, because it's not like Terrence Crawford had a lot of time to go and you know, defend that title. He inherited that title, inherited that mandatory defense uh, from Errol Spence Jr. Um, does the IBF deserve criticism for taking the title away from Terrence Crawford as quickly as they did? 100%. I mean, so he, what was it, July 29th, I think the day was. So you're talking August, September, October. So we're three full months and a couple of weeks in, in the November. change, yeah. And he's already, and they've already, you know, taken the belt off of him. Um, who has Ennis fought that, that's anywhere near who Terrence Crawford fought 
to become the full champion, right? I mean, ridiculous. And and the thing is, I think, you know, the, the problem the sanctioning bodies have is they care their own self-interest. Now, I think I get the whole deal about their rules and the, but the, I think what the sanctioning bodies need to do is come together and all rework their rules so that they work together with the business of boxing and make this all be like, I, I feel Chris that fighters deserve chances. So you can't just sit on the title and have Terrence Crawford sit there and not fight and wait, you know, a year and then Earl Spence comes back and nobody gets a crack at the championship. I think that they have to defend the titles in a reasonable amount of time. And certainly the mandatories have to be taken care of. But I also think that three months, especially when it's a new champion, if Spence had won that fight, okay, go ahead and, and make him uh, make him take the uh, the mandatory. But that wasn't the case in this situation. So I think that the rules have to be rewritten. You know, I know the IBF in particular really adheres very closely to their rules after the Bob Aaron bribery uh, case with the president, Bob Lee, in what was it, 2000 or 2001. Um, and I, you know, I remember that uh, <laughs> very vividly. Uh, and I think that they're now being very extra cautious in terms of sticking straight down the letter of the law and they're not you know but there has to be some wiggle room in this and plus you can't make fighters fight right um you know this is not like a team sport where there's schedules and people are going to show up on a certain date for games you know you've got to get the fighters to agree to fight um but I, bottom line i just think the ibf is wrong in this and the sanctioning bodies they do some good i give the, especially the wbc they do drug testing which i like they do chair which i like but they also do some confounding things. And so, you know, the sanctioning bodies are a double thumbs down for me. Uh, I don't want to totally rip them, but uh, I think they're a big problem in boxing that needs to be solved. Two things I think the IBF did wrong in this situation. One, they didn't have Spence defend that belt uh, against its mandatory enough. I think it was only one time in the last three right. or four years that Spence defended it. That was against Carlos Acampo. Uh, now, two thousand wasn't it, or tw yeah. I mean, twenty twenty, or yeah, it was. It was a while ago, a long time ago. So they they should have ordered a mandatory title defense between the Ocampo fight and when Spence fought Terence Crawford. Second, they should have waited a little longer, right? You didn't need to play this card. Yeah, you didn't need to play this card in early November. You could have waited until the end of the calendar year, or at least until there was some clarity on what was going to happen between Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence when it comes uh, to the rematch. Boots Ennis, look, he got the interim title. I don't think people were, like, clamoring for Ennis to be elevated. There really wasn't this overwhelming push publicly, or even from Ennis's camp at this point, to have Ennis be declared the full champion at 147. Ennis wanted the fight. Ennis wanted to fight Terrence Crawford, belt or no belt. He wanted that opportunity. Um, so I, I think they could have waited a little bit longer on that. All that being said... To me, it kind of feels like we're talking about it, semantics here. It's, it, I, it's pretty clear to me, Kevin, that Terrence Crawford is not ever going to fight Boots Ennis. He's effectively said as much. It's pretty clear to me that the only fights that Terrence Crawford, who's, what, 35, 36 years old now, is going to take are mega fights. And mega fights, you can count on one hand. We're talking about a rematch with Spence, which isn't the fight it used to be. We're talking about a showdown with Jermel Charlo, if he comes back and Not fights at 154. Not the fight it used to be, certainly. Or a Canelo fight, right? And sure, it would have been nice for Crawford if he got the Canelo fight in May of next year to be called the undisputed champion at 147. Undisputed versus undisputed once again. It would have been a nice marketing tool. But the reality of this situation is that Crawford is not fighting Boots he is not fighting Mario Barrios, who has got the WBC interim title at 147. Right. He is not fighting uh, Imanta Stanionis, who has got the interim title at 147 the WBA. He is not fighting Keith Thurman. He is not fighting... Uh, yeah, I'm blanking now on... Danny Garcia? Name? No, not Danny Garcia, who beat uh, Alexis Rocha just this past couple of weeks ago. I'm oh, just, uh, Sant Santolin. Santillan, yeah. Giovanni Santillan. He's not going to fight him. Uh, for yeah, it's not going to happen. So it is disappointing that the IBF would take this position and approach it this way. But it was going to happen eventually because Terrence Crawford was not going to fight Boots Ennis. So I, my frustration is tempered because of that. I feel like they could have done things differently. But at the end of the day, Crawford is most likely never 
going to defend his 147-pound titles. Everything he's looking for is north at least one uh, weight class. So I, I'm, I, you know, I would hope that like in the first half of next year, if the WBC sees Crawford not looking to defend that title, they elevate Mario Barrios. Like, let's get some things in motion here in 147 so maybe we can get some of these bigger fights happening between these top guys. You know, when when the WBA came out with that thing, Super Champions, you know, it got mocked and it's been misused so badly over the years. But I think that there's a way that the sanctioning bodies could work and, and use that concept. Never call it Super Champions because that is a problem. But, you know, I Franchise been, champion. How about the franchise champion? Let's bring franchise, that back. Yeah, well, we have that one, too. So that was a problem. But I think, with, you know, if you come up with some solution where the four organizations can work together and we agree, okay... Terrence Crawford is undisputed, so we're going to create a separate category for those people. It's good to have these undisputed fights because it gets all the champions together and the people. You take away that excuse from the audience. I don't know who the champions are. Well, guess what? You're going to have an undisputed heavyweight title fight. You're going to have an undisputed light heavyweight title fight. We already have undisputed 168, 154, 147 down the line. We, you know, it's all it's starting to clarify. So now. Okay, they create that creates stars out of these people and recognize, you know, the fact that people recognize who Terrence Crawford is now is a is a big thing, right? The fact that the general sports public recognizes him is a huge thing. So let let's use that notoriety they get and and work together as as opposed to working apart from each other. I've never understood why the sanctioning bodies can't say they don't rank other you know divisions champions. Like why can't they do it? Or why Crazy. can't they take yeah. a merger of their ratings? Like each of the organization gets to vote, and then once you know you have the rate, uh, the merged ratings, and and fight in the top ten, you have a stronger top ten that way. I, I just don't get it. I mean, I think that they're, but you oh, know, the- I mean, Kevin, you do get it, right? Because it's money, it's greed, it's having separate champions than other weight classes have at any given time. It's all about the money. I mean, I look, the WBC just had some boondoggle of a convention in what Uzbekistan, like everything that these sanctioning bodies do is about the money. The reason, not to get too off topic, but the reason Jamal Charlo was allowed to hold on to his title and has been allowed to hold on to his title, despite the fact that he has dumped all over it in the last couple of weeks and shown no interest whatsoever in defending it back at 160 pounds, is because Mauricio Suleiman and the WBC were crossing their fingers and hoping that if, if Jamal Charlo fought Canelo Alvarez, it would be WBC champion versus WBC champion. That's the only reason. It's money. It's always about the money with yep. these sanctioning bodies at the expense of the integrity of the sport. I want to, I had a conversation with Mauricio at um, Spence Crawford, and I talked to him for about a half an hour about some of the problems that exist with all the organizations and the rules that they have and the things that they do. And he said to me, if you can come up with a way to get everybody to agree, I would agree to implement it right off the bat, right? And like to, to make this, the rules more similar so that it works better for all the for the. At the end of the day, it should work best for who? The fight fans, right? The fighters and the fight fans. That's who we want to make it best for, right? This is a business. You're selling a business. You want to bid your best product forward. Well, put your biggest fights out there and don't have some arbitrary, goofy rule. And you have a at least Boo Sentence is a good fighter who has the potential to be a great fighter. I don't think he's a great fighter yet. And I've been a little disappointed in his last couple performances, but I would say that. He's a guy that has potential to become a star of the level of Spence was or that Crawford is now. So at least we have that. So, but I think you get so many crazy mandatories, Chris, that you know how that is that, you know, who wants to see these fights? And when Bernard Hopkins wanted to remain undisputed, look at, you know, Murad Hakar and, and Carl Daniels and the, the people that he fought to be able to keep his championship. I, I think, you know, if Mauricio was true to his word and would talk to, you know, get some kind of organization together and try to see if we can, hey, you're going to still have separate champions, but we're going to have similar rules and similar rankings. That could go a long way. It's never going to solve the problem, but, you know, it is. I guess it is what it is at the end of the day. We're in this too long. We're resigned to the mediocrity that they give us. I mean, the rankings are often wild. Um, right. You, you stack up the rankings of each sanctioning body side by side, and... It, it looks like they're being written sometimes by, by two different sports. You have one guy that might be three or four in one sanctioning body's ranking, not in the top 15 in the other. It's, it's definitely crazy. 
you know, cleaning up the sanctioning bodies. That's a you could do three podcasts, a podcast series about all that. Um, Three-year podcast series. Yeah, no question about that. Um, all right, I want to talk about Gennady Golovkin. Uh, you and I, again, we're in New York. We watched the Callum Walsh fight, had a chance to catch up with Tom Loeffler, uh, Gennady's longtime promoter. And, you know, Tom was asked during fight week about the future of Golovkin, who has not fought since last September when he lost that decision on the trilogy fight to Canelo Alvarez. Tom, in fairness, has not been as involved the day-to-day with Gennady Golovkin as he used to be. When he brought Golovkin to the U.S. back in 2012, he was intimately involved. The last three or four years, he has been it's, it's more nominally involved, I guess, than, than anything else. Still, he is as close to Gennady as anyone in the boxing sphere is at the moment. And uh, look, you know, Tom didn't come out and say it, but it sure sounds like Gennady is not going to fight anymore. He's past 40 at this point. He's not fought again since last September and no plans to fight, at least not anytime soon. And Tom was asked about, you know, you know, kind of Gennady and, you know, you know what, what, he, what, what it means to him at this point, what, what his career would look like with it being over. He said, look, Gennady has earned the right to do whatever he wants. Made a boatload of money. He's accomplished all he needs to accomplish. And uh, that's, if he wants to go out this way, that's perfectly, that should be perfectly fine with everybody. It got me thinking, Kevin, about the legacy of Gennady Golovkin, because I do believe it is a complicated one. Because from 2012 to 2018, Gennady Golovkin was everything that was right in boxing, right? He comes to the U.S., he knocks out Gregory Proxa. I was at that fight in upstate New York. It's like, oh, man, who is this Kazakhstani warrior who will fight anybody, who says big drama show, who uh, you know is willing to fight three, sometimes four times in a calendar year, no matter who it's up against, uh, and built a profile as that kind of fighter. So that six-year run was fantastic. That was a Hall of Fame-level six-year run that culminated with that close decision defeat to Canelo Alvarez back in 2018. Since then, though, I I don't think this is a hot take, but I have been pretty disappointed in Gennady Golovkin because there were plenty of moments where Golovkin, over the last five years, could have taken the fights that he spent the previous six years clamoring for. He could have, at any point in time, fought Demetrius Andrade, who was then a title holder at 160. He most likely could have fought Jaime Munguia, who was a 154 title holder, moving up to 160. That would have been a pretty big fight. He could have taken on one of the Charlos, Jamal Charlo, at 160 at different times. A lot of things Gennady Golovkin could have done, but instead, he chose to populate his resume with guys like Steve Rolls, which was a comeback fight after the uh, the Canelo First loss, uh, Sergey Derevchenko, which turned out to be a great fight, um, but at the time was not looked at as as a high profile type fight. Um, he he just has fought guys that are on that second tier. He has not fought top level guys, and the last five years have been more about inactivity than activity in the ring. So, I guess that's my way of saying. Uh, Kevin, that look, Gennady's a first ballot Hall of Famer. There's no question about that. But I think his career could have been so much more. If he acted over the last five years of his U.S.-based career, as he did in the first six, I think Gennady could have had, could have become so much more than he ultimately was. Well, you know, I, th- I a lot of what you just said, I have written repeatedly since uh, the second Canelo fight. Uh, you know, why are you fighting Steve Rolls? Why are you fighting Derevchenko? Why aren't you fighting A, B, or C, right? And and so I, I agree with you. You know, the question that comes to me is how great is Gennady at this point? Is his career is over and we look at him. So from the Proxa fight in 2012 until the second Canelo fight, you know, you could argue he won all those fights. You know, I think you and I for both Canelo uh, one and two with Gennady sat right next to each other, as I remember. And, you know, I had Gennady winning the first and the second to draw. And I think you had the first to draw and Canelo winning the second, if I remember correctly. No, I, I actually I had Gennady winning both. I had him edging on the scorecards. Yeah, very close. Competitive, no question. So, right. So, he could have been, you know, through the second uh, Canelo fight, he could have been, could have been, and probably maybe should have been undefeated against pretty good competition, but he never had that, you know, other than Canelo, that really big opponent, you know, that was in there. So, now you look and you, like you put very uh, aptly his opponent since then, who he could have fought and who who he did wound up fighting. 
that makes you wonder about where you rank him in the all-time list. Like, I think he was on a path where you could say, hey, this guy is one of the top five middleweights of all time. And yeah. I, especially when you consider, his, you know, how many amateur fights did he have? Three, 400 amateur fights, mm -hmm. Olympic silver medalist, comes into the pros, you know, has, what is it, 20-some consecutive title defenses, all those knockouts. I mean, he had a lot going for him. But now you look at the end of his career, and he has, you know, a pretty bad loss to Canelo, you know, there. You know, uninspired opposition in uh, Murata and Steve Rolls and whatnot. Don't forget Camille Zarameta. Don't forget we, that chestnut. Zarameta, the, the Polish flash, uh, was uh, was in there. And I think that that knocks him down. You know, I don't think, you know, a, you take a Harry Greb or a, a Marvin Hagler, Carlos Monzon. He's not going to be was never going to be ranked above those guys, you know, in there. But I think he had a chance to sneak up into that that top five, top seven middleweights of all time. And I, I think now his end of career drops him down, frankly. I, I don't think there's any way of it. Who Who, when you sit there, if I said to you, very quickly, name me Canel, or Triple G's biggest win. It's tough, right? Who is it? You'd, you'd have to say. Danny Jacobs? It, well, look, it was pretty clear. The first Canelo fight, I thought, was a brazen robbery. Like, I, I thought he deserved that. But he didn't that. get it, so we can't. Didn't get it. Didn't, I, you're right. You're right. You, you, yeah, I mean, I, you're right. But I look at that as a win when I think of, you know, his, you know, when I think of voting into the Hall of Fame and what these guys had on the resume, Danny Jacobs was a really good win too. He knocked Jacobs down in that fight. That was a, a quality win when Jacobs was still a very high quality uh, type of guy. But that's really it because you go back down that list, and even though he was incredibly active, you're talking about Dominic Wade, Kell Brook, David Lemieux, Willie Monroe Jr., Martin Murray. These are good fighters. Daniel Giel, uh, but then Curtis guys. Stevens. Yeah, B-level guys at best. So he was not facing and beating the A-level opponents. And he had that opportunity right. when he was still a world champion. You know, he regained one version of his belt, of his title, when he beat Derevinchenko. So he had opportunities to fight someone like Demetrius Andre, which would have been, I think, a fantastic fight. You know, if he, if he fought Andre in, say, 2019, early 2020. He could have fought Jamal Charlo at some point. He could have fought Jaime Munguia, which would have been a great fight. As recently as like a year ago, a Jaime Munguia Golovkin fight would have been a great fight. This calendar year, actually, if they'd been able to put it together, that would have been a great fight. He just didn't do it. And look, maybe the hunger went out of him a little bit, and I can't blame him for that. This guy was fighting, as you mentioned, hundreds of times in the amateur ranks, clawing his way to the top, fighting largely over in Europe, having to fight three, four times a year, be in training camp all the time when he was fighting early in the U.S. Look, you don't have the same passion for the job when you go through stuff like that. You're only looking for those big ticket items. And look, Golovkin could probably, if he's listening to this show, could probably say, you know what? <laughs> what the hell do you know, Chris? I cashed like a $30 million check in my last fight. It all worked out well for me. And in that sense, he's right. But legacy-wise, I think it's he's been diminished. I don't want to say tarnished, but he's been diminished by his lack of interest in the big fights over the last five years. No, I 100% agree. And I was you meant you stole the words out of my mouth when you talked about the $30 million check. When you start making those eight-figure paychecks, it's hard to go back to fighting for $4 million. Right. I mean, you did it like four million dollars, which is an enormous amount of money to ninety nine point nine nine percent of people in the world is peanuts to a guy who made 30, 20 and and twenty five million in, in the you know preceding few fights. And all of a sudden now, you know, that doesn't that doesn't get him up and want to get out at four in the morning to run. And it doesn't want, you know, all the aches and pains you go through in training camp, you know, to fight a guy that, you know, is not at your level. And, and I, I think that was a really apt point that, that you made. And, you know, I think Gennady has. Like, he was a victim in, in some ways of guys of, you know, Canelo should have fought him earlier. I remember I got a lot of crap um, after the Canelo-Amir Khan fight. I was asking, I was really trying to put the pressure on Oscar and then Canelo, why not Gennady next? And they, they wanted to fight, I think it was Cotto, if I'm not mistaken, was, was the next. And, you know, I love Miguel Cotto, but Cotto wasn't a middle, you know, a middleweight mm -hmm. at that um, But... Gennady, you know, Gennady kind of got screwed a little bit there. He had a because he had a way to fight Canelo. I think he was at less than his best in in the after post Canelo career than he would have been had he fought if he had fought Canelo 15, 16, 17 in the three fights as opposed to 17, 18, 22. I think it would have been a totally different, you know, run, you know, and we would be looking at him differently. But 
at the end of the day, it is what it is, and we deal with what he did. And I completely agree with you. I think, you know, that he loses a little bit in terms of, you know, the reverence with which he will be spoken about down the road. Because you say, who are the big guys that he beat? And yeah, he knocked a lot of guys out. But, you know, matchmaking was a big part of that. And he never went up against the the fearsome, you know, guys, you know, like that. So it's unfortunate. He, you know, part of it was timing. You know, he didn't have a Bernard Hopkins out there. You know, that was a, you know... Uh, Imagine if the two of them had been in the same era, what a fight that would have been to have Bernard and uh, and Gennady at the top of their games going at it. But I mean, that would have been incredible. Yeah, yeah, that would have been awesome. The head games in that from Bernard would have been incredible. You just like yeah, these guys just missed each other by you know whether it's Golovkin just missing prime Canelo by three or four years. you know, Golovkin just missing Bernard Hopkins on the other end by three or four years, five right. years maybe. Uh, it's disappointing that you, we never got to see those types of matchups. Um, a couple more things for you. Shakur Stevenson back in action this weekend. He is in Las Vegas. A Thursday night fight, Kevin. I love this. I, I, I am all for weekday fights. I think in boxing, we put way, way too much focus on doing fights on Saturdays where you wind up competing with college football and doing too many fights at like one o'clock in the morning. But that's a conversation for another day. But Shakur Stevens is looking to become a three-division world champion, taking on Edwin De Los Santos. Um, I give De Los Santos credit for taking this fight. He called for it. He pushed for it. Shakur Stevenson was supposed to face Frank Martin. Frank Martin backs out. Um, but is De Los Santos a legitimate threat in this fight, or are we looking at another easy path to a title for one of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the sport, Shakur Stevenson? I have been high on Shakur Stevenson. I have, I think before anybody, I had him ranked in my pound for pound top 10 and I have him way up high right now. I I love Shakur Stevenson and I think he's going to be number one pound for pound, not very distant future and then be number one for a long time. I think that's how good this kid is. Um, I think De Los Santos, you know, hey, look, in the Valenzuela fight, you know, he's got a knockout, look good, you know, wasn't expected. Um, I think he's a decent fighter. I think he's a solid fighter that would give a lot of people a lot of trouble, but not Shakur Stevenson. I mean, I think Shakur Stevenson is at another level. Um, I, I think that Stevenson, I always was was promoting Crawford as, hey, Crawford is going to be a really guy. And some people agreed, some people didn't. But I think Shakur Stevenson has even more potential and higher potential than Terrence Crawford. And I think if he puts it all together, I mean, we're looking at a phenomenal guy here. And I don't see somebody like Adelo Santos as good as he is. And, you know, he, he's give him credit. I mean, you know, he's gone out there and, you know, he's fought undefeated fighters. You know, and not all the undefeated fighters he's fought have been, you know, household names. But Emmanuel Stewart told me one time, he said, you know, undefeated fighters have a mindset uh, that's different a lot of times than, than fighters who have three, four or five losses. And they they're, they don't understand losing, and they all do anything in the pursuit of victory. And so that he always liked to have his fighters fighting people who had that undispe- uh, undefeated record, even if they they weren't as uh, highly regarded as somebody else. So you know, give De Los Santos that he's been fighting some decent opposition in his last you know few fights. But you're running into a buzzsaw with this kid, and this kid can you know Stevenson can fight any way you want. He can you know fight off his back foot. He you know he can. He is a, um, a good mover, and he can hit. I think there's so much with uh, Shakur Stevenson. I think he's a superstar in the making. He stays out of trouble, which he's been doing, and he's been showing really good. I, I like him a lot, and I think he's going to look really impressive on uh, Thursday. Shakur Stevenson has made some really good fighters look absolutely ordinary. Uh, Jamel Herring, really good fighter, completely overmatched against Shakur Stevenson before getting knocked out. Right. In that 10th round. Oscar Valdez, really good fighter, completely overmatched against Shakur Stevenson. Robeson Conceição, really good fighter, wildly overmatched against Shakur Stevenson. Uh, Shashiro Yoshino, undefeated fighter we took on Shakur Stevenson. He can't get out of the 6th round in that fight. So Shakur, the greatest, the best argument you can make for Shakur being special is that he has completely dismantled some B-plus level fighters maybe even A-minus in the case of some guys, um, along the way to getting to this point. Now, I think he's going to make short work of De Los Santos. I, I just think he's on a completely different level. The question I have is, what is that big fight? What is that statement fight for Shakur Stevens? Because he hasn't really had it yet. He's had some good wins over top-level guys, but he hasn't had that moment. Um, 
I think, Kevin, maybe you probably heard the same things. I think that, De- uh, that uh, Vasily mm-hmm. Lomachenko, uh, Lomachenko winds up fighting George Cambosis in the first quarter of next year. I think that yeah, fight, that fight yeah, I think that fight's going to happen in Australia in the first quarter of next year. That will be for the IBF title. Um, Shakur, after this fight, would have the WBC title. You leave, look, Javante would be a major fight. Color me skeptical that Javante would step in the ring with Shakur Stevenson at this point. I'd love to see it. That would be a monster event. But what is that first statement fight, do you think, out there in 2024 or beyond for Shakur Stevenson? Yeah, I, I think it's a tough question. But I think, you know, a Ryan Garcia, a, a, a Devin Haney, I think somebody like that. He'd have to go up. He'd have to go up for those fights. Right, I know, I know. Frank, Frank Martin made a huge mistake in my mind. And that's oh, been, huge. If, you, if you look at the PBC, right, what is one of the things that their fighters don't fight? And so when you when you look at the, all their guys, you know we mentioned the Charlo brothers. Look how infrequently they fought. Um, you just go down the line, and th- those guys don't fight. And now they're putting Gervonta Davis, and they're trying to oh, Gervonta dictates bullshit with that stuff. You know, let's make the fights that are good. Forget about this. I control and you control that. That bullshit is what's caused boxing to be in the position it is today. Yeah, you get a score once in a while, and you have a big fight. Um, I think Trevante and, and Shakur will be off the charts big, right? The boxer versus the slugger. I mean, to me, like you could draw a lot of parallels to March 8th, 1971, Ali versus Frazier. And you have Trevante and the Joe Frazier role in terms of style in the ring. You know, the, the, the killer, the, uh, the hard hitter, and Ali is the boxer. Uh, Shakur is Ali is the boxer and the, and the slick guy. And I think that there's a lot that can be done with that fight, Chris. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I think it's highly unlikely to be made or highly unlikely to be made in 2024. It's going to be made in like 27 when, you know, both guys are kind of on the end of it. And, you know, there's still some relevancy, but that's what's going to happen. I mean, that, you know, the people involved have shown that that's how they operate. That is what is going to happen. So I, I think, you know, I think Shakur has to move, um, fight catch weights. I think, you know, that might be something that he can do, but I don't, you know, I don't think that there's a big fight for him at 135, uh, to, to be honest. So I think he has to collect a title, try to put that on his resume to get to as many, you know, do I think he can be a successful welterweight? Yes. You know, I never thought Mayweather would really be a, you know, a 154 pounder and he went up and won, won titles at that weight class. And so I think Shakur similar to Mayweather could go to maybe 47. I think it would be asking him, you know, starting at Bantamweight a lot to go up to 47, but I think he could do, he's that special kind of guy and he has a kind of a little bit of a frame that, you know, could allow him to do that. But to me, I think that that's his limit and just collect the titles until you get the big fight. until somebody decides to, you know, say, I'll, I'll take you on and, and, and take a risk. You know, the fight I love is a Shakur Stevenson, Williams, a fight. Now, I know that is more of a fight for the boxing purist because William mm-hmm. Zapata does not have the kind of name, you know, in the mainstream that he has within boxing. There's a lot of respect from people within boxing because he has become an excellent and fan-friendly yeah. fighter. Um, you know, William Zapata kind of has a pathway to the WBO belt, right? He's ranked, I think, fifth or sixth. There's a couple of guys ahead of him, but no big names, at least not ones that are going to be available. Shakur's ahead of him on that uh, in that in those rankings, but he's going to get the WBC title. Lomachenko's ahead of him in those rankings, but he's looking at the IPF title. Uh, there's a pathway for William Zapata to get a WBO title shot if Devin Haney vacates after December 9th and you know, if the WBO acts quickly on making a fight like that. And so first half of next year, if Zapata can capture one of those belts, Zapata, Shakur Stevenson for two belts at 135, that's a really fun fight because that is a ultimate contrast of styles. We got William Zapata who throws like 100 punches around and Shakur Stevens who throws like a quarter of that. But Zapata is not the most accurate puncher, whereas Shakur is incredibly accurate and incredibly powerful with his punches. I just love that fight from a style perspective, Kevin. I, I like the fight because Zapata's winning and he, you know, as you mentioned, he's fan friendly. But I think it's a bad fight from like if you're his management team and you're going to put him in there. Other than money, right? If you're going you know, to forget the money, which we can't forget the money, but you know, other than money, from you're, you're looking at it and you're saying, what does he get out of this career? Because Steve, Shakur will pot shot him. 
I don't think he's ever going to lay a glove on Shakur, right? And Shakur will create angles and with his footwork, you know, he's got such great footwork. And I, I think Shakur will just bust up his eyes and, you know, it'll be one of those fights that were, you know, eight to one, you know, nine to zero. And then Shakur will stop him because Zapata can't see and Shakur is landing all these clean shots. I think that's what really will happen. So is that a fight that, um, that'll happen? You know, maybe, you know, I mean, Oscar's now on this crusade about, you know, let's get all the promoters together. Well, you know, that's your chance. This is what that, I'm talking about. This is like, fight. it's time It's time to put your money where your mouth is if you're Oscar right. De La Hoya. Like, you're calling out all these promoters to make the big fights. Well, you've got a guy in, you know, William Zapata who could be in the mix. You could do some cross-promotion to make a fight like that happen. You've also got Jaime Munguia, not to get into him, but, like, right. you've got to put him in a right. big fight in 2024. So that would be a good example. Maybe it's an end of 2024 kind of fight, Kevin. Maybe after Zapata gets two fights under his belt. And, look, I'm with you that Shakur wins. I do think it's more competitive than you, you seem to think because I think Zapata will touch Shakur. I think he throws so many punches that he will get to Shakur with some stuff. And... You know, give him some problems at different stages during the fight. I think Shakur gets to him with a counter shot that puts him down. But I think before then, Zapata has more success than maybe you believe. You know, I'm going to say this. Uh, while you were talking, a fight popped into my mind. and it, it, We mentioned Oscar's name, so I'm going to throw Oscar out there. I, I think it's Oscar versus Gotti, right? You know, I mean, do you remember that fight? And uh, Yeah. You know, um, that's kind of what I think it is, right? You know, you're going to have a A plus guy on this side who has every talent you want to have in boxing compared to maybe an A minus or B plus guy on this side who has some, some attributes to him, but he doesn't have all the things that the other guy has. And I just see him, you know, kind of just being, you know, just pot shotted and a lot of jabs cracking him in the face and his head bouncing all over the place and, you know, eventually not being able to go. Now, I, the thing is a guy like that, I, I will admit this, a guy who throws a lot of punch and who's aggressive, sometimes you land one, you know, in the middle of a, you know, something that if you throw a punch, you're intending to land. But I mean, I don't, so I'm not, I'm trying to avoid saying a lucky punch, but you know, if Shakur gets caught, right, that there's a possibility he's an octopus and he's throwing and, and Shakur gets caught. But beyond that one little narrow window, I just don't see that happening. That's why I say Oscar versus Gotti. I think Zapata, I don't think, would hurt Shakur, but I think he has the potential to be up like 4-2 after 6, like because he throws so many punches. Because, look, I remember you know seeing the fights with Zapata against you know, Jojo Diaz, Zapata against Mercito Hesta, where early in these fights, he clearly wasn't hurting these guys, especially Jojo with punches. But when you're getting hit with a 10-punch combination, throwing nothing back, well, you know, judges are going to take notice of that. And Shakur is a much more uh, judicious puncher. Well, what does Shakur also do that Jojo Diaz and 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 uh, Jojo Diaz right? And that, right. that's the thing, you know, that you get a little once you land that first punch. If you're a guy like uh, Zapata, then it's easier to land the subsequent punches because now you've you've hit the guy, you've made contact, you're in punching position. Now you can land the rest of those punches. But if you miss that first one and you're here, and all of a sudden Shakur, boom, you know, comes back with the jab. Or, or the left hand, you know, in your face, it's a, it's a totally different scenario. And so that's what I think Shakur's defensive abilities and, and how smart he is in the ring. He's going to walk uh, Zapeta into shots, you know. So, like, to me, like, I, I would rather have seen a Frank Martin fight. But I think Frank Martin looked at it and said he, he realizes what's going on. And, you know, for the, I, I'm not saying Frank Martin would turn the fight down. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's afraid. But I'm also saying he made a calculated decision. If I'm going to fight this guy for sh short money, then I want to, you know, I, I'm not going to take it right now. If I fight him for, you know, bigger money when I have a little bit bigger resume and he has a bigger resume, okay, then I'll take it. And I, but I think Frank Martin and Frank Martin's team and Al Heyman, they knew what was going on and they look at these two fighters and they see the skills of the two fighters and they knew what would happen. I get it, but, you know, yeah, not to, rehash and relitigate this but frank martin i'd like to say he made a business decision but he has no fight schedule and god knows what pbc's calendar is going to look like in 2024 and when right. he gets that next fight and when he gets the bigger fight and what that bigger fight is for him out there is he going to get Gervonta? if you're on the pbc and you're not Gervonta davis chris with their situation with showtime and their tv thing how do you become a star you don't even know if you're going to be on tv or if you're if you have frank martin 
has to be on over the air TV, mm-hmm. something that's except or very or be active or be very active, right? Or be, fighting yeah. three times. So a people year. can see him. It's not going to become a big fight if Frank Martin's like nowhere and nobody sees him. And then all of a sudden, oh, hey, Frank Martin's won four fights. It's time to fight Shakur. Nobody sees him. It's not a big fight. Yeah, it definitely is not. We'll see what happens with the PBC stuff early next year. It's always something worth watching. All right, follow Kevin Ioli on social media at Kevin I on Twitter. Uh, read his stuff over at Yahoo Sports. Kevin, great to catch up, man. Always appreciate your time. All right, brother. I appreciate you, man. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Kevin Ioli for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And I'll see you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's Wee championship game. A trophy bigger than your 5-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.